1: You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are.
0: Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has as much to offer in the modern world as it has ever had. We're not here to chat about the news, but to look at the biggest issues and talk to experts from across the country. Today we'll be discussing the possibility of Britain staying in the single market, and there's even the chance for you to win the hottest item of political fashion right now. I'm Connor Pope, Deputy Editor of Progress. I'm joined by Rural South MP and Chair of Progress, Alison McGovern. Hello, Alison. Hello, Connor. And Progress Director, Richard Angel. Hello, Richard. Hello, Connor. Last week saw Theresa May fulfil every politician's nightmare with a keynote speech that involved her losing a voice, being handed a P45, and a stage set that committed itself to some on the nose physical metaphor about the state of the Tory government. So, before we get stuck into the nitty-gritty of the podcast, I thought we could begin by recounting our own worst experiences of public speaking. Richard, why don't you kick us off?
2: I was standing to be on the Block of Twelve, as it then was, in the National Union of Students. The what? It was called the Block of Twelve. It was a kind of... This
1: is some weirdo student politics thing no one's ever heard of.
2: So we've got straight into the fact that Alice has got a chip <laughs> on her shoulder about the fact that she wasn't in the best organisation in the Labour Party and Labour Students and got the great training ground that Labour Students is for politics going forward. But I did, and it was a brilliant thing to do. And they propelled me to stand for this amazing position in the bizarre organisation that is the National Union of Students. Anyway, there must have been about 30 candidates for these 12 positions. We had 90 seconds to make a memorable speech. And a former NUS president and all-round guru speechwriter wrote me a ninety-second speech, which was, the Words from Angels by Robbie Williams reworked for an NUS conference. So one of its best lines...
1: And you maintain that this was a good training ground for British politics.
2: What not to do is sometimes (laughs) the best lessons we can learn going forward. And one of the best lines, stroke worst lines, was if you're in further education, we offer you protection. Or something absolutely (laughs) awful, stroke creepy and terrible. And I had a tantrum about it, but... Everybody insisted that it was the right. It's, it's thing incredible, to do. isn't it,
0: that kind of plagiarism of that scale seems like it should be a bad idea, and that people would just understand that. And yet, Theresa May's speechwriter, in, in fact, included a section that was lifted almost entirely from The West Wing. I mean, for I her think conference speech last week.
1: That's right, and I think what was amazing about Theresa May's speech was, like, look, we've all been through those situations. I've coughed on television for an hour. I did the whole of the Daily Politics with the world's worst cough once. That was bad. We've all been there, but it was the ability of every single possible thing that could have gone wrong with that speech, almost to the point that you suspected it was some kind of grand plot. They were like, right, we need sympathy, but we don't just need a bit of sympathy. We need, <laughs> like, <laughs> we need everyone in Britain to be going, oh, mate, that's not fair. Come on, let's get behind her. And uh, just every little thing went wrong.
0: So Alison, do you have a story related to this? that you'd be able to tell us?
1: Uh, I've got loads I've got loads I think when you do a lot of public speaking anyway and you know politicians do basically get paid money to say words out loud I think when you do a lot of public speaking everything goes wrong eventually so I was in the chamber once I was trying to get in to questions of the Chancellor of the Exchequer who was then George Osborne and we got to the end of the session and I thought I wasn't going to be called. So I started like tweeting something on my phone. And then John Berker goes, Alison McGovern out of nowhere. And I literally <laughs> had to throw my phone across the chamber, leap up and think of something to say, which is impossible at the moment when you're like, mine's gone. So I made some like joke out of it, pretending to have been checking the latest economic figures on my phone. Obviously I wasn't. <laughs>
2: Tweeted about Liverpool Football Club.
1: More likely, more likely. Yes,
2: uh,
0: I do have a story. I, I don't think either of you know this about me either, which is that a few years ago I was in fact a, a jobbing stand-up comedian. Wow! Didn't I, know this. I, I did New the news. I did this for several years. I mainly did the kind of uh, the northwest stand-up circuit. I did a lot. Of, Shows in uh, Manchester and Preston. We also did kind of, you know, work in men's clubs. The
1: Frog and Bucket um, or whatever it's called. The, f- and the Frog
0: and Bucket. I, I, I went to a lot. But I, I remember, uh, you know, and I would always try and do a kind of like, basically like this. I would t- try and make progressive values and, and, uh, and f- make it clear what my worldview was through the standard comedy and, it, and I would do that whether I was in a you know working men's club in Accrington or I remember doing an after dinner like restaurant thing in the Ribble Valley in which I'd actually obtained someone's Conservative Party membership card, which I burnt on (laughs) the (laughs) stage. But I I know you do not condone on this podcast. (laughs) But obviously, the question people always ask you is like, "Have you ever died on stage?" And for years, I'd never had. I'd always been all right, even when I was doing stuff like that. It was fine, and it wasn't up until I did a gig at the Up the Creek Comedy Club in Greenwich, which you would think would be a kind of haven of progressive values. And it was about 2011. It was around the time of the London riots. And there was talk of Boris Johnson, now Foreign Secretary, then Mayor of London, wanting to buy water cannons to use in London. And at the same time, there was talk about cuts to the fire service. It's my kind of opening gag with something along the lines of, you know, soon if your house is on fire, the quickest way to put it out will be to hold an anti-austerity demo in your front garden. <laughs> I'm not claiming it's the world's greatest joke. But I cannot explain to you the silence (laughs) that met me in that room. And it was the worst gig I've ever done to this day. And every time I walk past it, I still live in South East London. Every time I walk past it, I still get that kind of hot tingle of shame of standing with a microphone in front of a group of people who do not find you funny and are annoyed by that fact.
1: (laughs) Well, my granddad was a folk singer, so I literally grew up with... Like my granddad being on stage, everyone thinking he was great. And then afterwards, my dad would always say to him, yeah, but don't forget. And like, then he would mention this list of infamous gigs where my granddad <laughs> absolutely panned. Brilliant.
0: Well, in the next section, we're going to discuss Brexit and the single market. So do stick with us. Is it possible that Britain could stay in the single market? Both the Tory and Labour approaches towards leaving the EU have been in constant doubt since the shock election result in June, in which millions of pro-Europeans turned out to stop a hard Tory Brexit. But with a Conservative in Downing Street and Labour declining to debate it at conference, will it actually happen? Alison, you're co-chair of the recently launched Labour's campaign to stay in the single market, which you launched with Heidi Alexander, was it last month or the month before?
1: In August, yeah.
0: And so... How many Labour MPs do you kind of have involved in this now?
1: So there must be around 40-odd Labour MPs who've been involved. But really, this campaign has never been about the Parliamentary Labour Party. Heidi and I agreed to start this campaign because a few grassroots Labour members, people we knew through local Labour parties, asked us to. And whilst obviously a lot of the activity will at the moment be on the Brexit bill, which is in Parliament... The point of having a campaign which is a Labour campaign is really to garner the energies of those Labour members who feel very strongly that we lost the referendum and we can't pretend that that didn't happen. But we can try and find the best way to come out of this Brexit mess with our constituents and people in Britain having a decent job, their rights at work protected And feeling like we've got a future for people in Britain and not kind of selling it all away just for some Liam Fox-esque pipe dream about future trade deals that look set never to happen.
0: So what do you think the process would look like from where we are now to March 2019 to be in a position where Britain is actually going to stay permanently in the single market? What happens in that two years?
1: There's two things I think that could tip this first is that i think everybody sees now the mistake of trying to do negotiations about the permanent future of our country on a party political basis and wouldn't Theresa May have been a lot smarter if she'd involved the opposition and had some kind of some kind of process where we could involve the public and listen to them so i think one of the things that could happen is that Theresa May could recognise that trying to make a brexit that just suits the tory party was never going to work and we've tested that theory now and it hasn't worked. So get the other parties involved, get the Labour Party involved, get the trade union movement and civil society involved and get the public involved. And I think once people start to see the costs and benefits on leaving the single market and potential trade deals, I mean, basically, it just seems more and more obvious that we stand to lose more than we're going to gain here. And I think once people realise that, then that could change how we handle Brexit. The other way that this happens, to be honest, is a general election. I don't look at Theresa May and her cabinet and think there's a balanced, sensible, competent group of people who are able to deal with possibly the biggest challenge in our country since the Second World War and the kind of logistical operation that this takes, even in peacetime. And so you kind of wonder at what point does this cease to work for them either? Now, I've long since given up predicting stuff in politics, given everything that's happened. But I think that the Labour Party's got to be ready for a general election. And I personally think our policy would be a lot more compelling and convincing. We could say to people, look, the way to deal with Brexit is to say the risks of leaving the single market are just too great. The potential benefits are not enough. Therefore, we stay in the single market and the customs union on a permanent basis. And I think if we reached out to our friends in Europe, and let's be honest, the trade union movement and the Labour Party have a lot more friends in Europe than the Tories do. (laughs) So if we reached out to our friends in Europe and said, can you help us on this? Can you work with us? I think we get a decent reception.
0: Richard, do you think there'll be a general election?
2: I don't think there'll be a general election for some time, I'm afraid. I have all the same analysis as Alison that this is hardly a competent group of people who are running the country for anything other than their own interests but I think their own interests will serve out and it means we'll be in for a very long parliament. I however think that there is a real opportunity to keep Britain in the single market coming up. If Labour takes the same approach as Alison said we believe the Tories should which is govern for the country rather than for our own interests so Labour has to be squarely behind staying in the single market but not looking to do it for political reasons, but because we know there are huge amounts of jobs and rights dependent on it. That if you can calibrate those things, that obviously the SNP will be with us, other smaller parties will. But I think there is then a phalanx of the Tory party that will come with us at the right point, And that Labour could essentially marshal Britain saving jobs and opportunities that go with it. And I think the key task for us internally in terms of the single market campaign is, yes, to make some of these business and jobs cases. And that's obviously really important and core to what we do. But it's not about it being the market that we care about. It's about it being in the social market. So we should remind people that you're my right to turn up in a BNB and b and not be turned away if I turn up with another man. Yes, it's a kind of EU right, but it's a derivative of us being in a single market, not the political union. And I think there's lots of ways in which this single market reflects Labour values through and through. But surely, though, if the aim here is to also try and work
0: across the aisle and get Tories on board as well, for them, surely the market aspect rather than the social market aspect is the more important one.
1: Yeah, I just, we spent a lot of time in Parliament trying to do that because when you're in opposition people like Stella Creasy for example are past masters at working across the aisle and trying to like that's a really American expression isn't it goodness are we comfortable with that working.
0: I have no idea what it means <laughs> I have no idea what it means.
1: It's like the aisle in uh in Congress or whatever uh, it is. I'm not, I'm not an expert. But anyway, working on a cross-party basis. Oh, okay. Stella's a past master at it. She, you know...
0: Across the chamber. Across
1: the chamber. Stella <laughs> has changed the law. She recently got women from Northern Ireland the right to have a free termination on the mainland in Britain. And what you see in the way that she does it is she takes something that's very specific, quite narrow... The future of our country seems to me to be like quite a big, unwieldy thing. And it's very, very difficult to see where we might get Tories to vote with us. So I think, Richard, just to come back to what you said... I think we can't sort of start this from the position of what might we possibly get some Tories to agree with us on. We have to start from the position of what's right for our country and build quite a big vision on that with the trade union movement and faith groups and other people. And then just wait for the Tories to follow us, because actually that's what they've done so far. You know, they have watched the Labour Party move its position and followed in behind us. So I think we should keep being ambitious, keep pushing Labour's leadership to be ambitious and watch the Tories' follow us.
2: So I, th- I think exactly the same, which is why I think that the making the internal case is so important because you've got to have the overwhelming group of Labour MPs taking that position together because the Tories don't need convincing of the economic arguments. They know that many of them made them very well in the referendum, so they know what the particular benefits of the single market are and quite frankly, their constituents whether it be the business owners in their area or the workers are going to come and volunteer those to them directly. What they need to know is if they're taking the risk to put their country for their party, they're going to be met on the other side of the aisle with one enough people to be able to defeat the government's position so they get the change that they want, but that Labour in return isn't going to make silly party political points out of people who've done the right thing. This is too important for that.
0: You don't think there's the case here that politicians, I think, are possibly too scared about the immigration issue, which obviously was a massive thing during the EU referendum. And if we talk about staying in the single market and that involving the four freedoms... Then a lot of people see that as just a way of ignoring one of the really big factors about leaving the European Union.
1: I spent my time, I think, over the past year probably talking about immigration more than most people. I think I don't have no evidence of this, but, I just,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but actually, um, that's quite useful for a debate on immigration. Understand?
1: Yeah, it is. It is. But having done three general elections in a Labour-Tory swing marginal. I have probably spoken about immigration with the public more than a lot of MPs because what happens in a general election where you're the Labour candidate and the Tories are trying to beat you and think that they can beat you is that we've always had compelling arguments on public services and people... People always feel that. You know the difference between a Labour government and a Tory government when you step foot in a school or a hospital or when you think about what your local council is able to do to stop homelessness or whatever. People know the difference. So at a certain point in a general election, the Tories decide to go with immigration as their big issue. And you have to have answers to that. When somebody says to you, I'm scared about the security of our country given you know the migration situation in the world, you have to have an answer. And I think that... We have very good answers, actually. And I think that the Labour Party has always been championing the security of people, whether that's, you know, investing properly in our armed forces or whether that's, if you look at historically the work that people like Fiona McTaggart did on trafficking, those issues have always been ones that we have been really forthright on. That is a different thing to what some people do on the hard right and the far right, which is try and stir up division amongst groups of workers and say, oh, these people who've come to work here, they're just foreigners, they're not like us. Well, historically, the trade union movement and the Labour Party have been the ones to say, no, 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 no. Somebody comes here, works hard, pays their taxes. They are just like us. They are one of us. And we won't be divided by the hard right or the far right.
0: So Richard, I know that you have a bit of insight on kind of how the full freedoms bit is
2: a bit of a misnomer how stuff could work around changing immigration rules anyway. Well, I think one thing that Brexit has done is mean that progressive politicians like all of us have to make the case for why immigration is good for Britain, and that has been a really good thing, and Alison has taken a real lead on that, and that is something that we're really proud of her for doing for us. But what we should be saying and what david cameron should have done in the referendum was make a kind of dover speech like blair did in 2005 when the tories made immigration a big issue in that debate is he took on that debate and led from the front with it david cameron in the typical way that he avoided any real leadership opportunities didn't do that in that referendum and it is now for us to do it and those of us who believe that the single market and that being open to people coming in from the world is there what you can do is a whole number of things differently to what we currently do and still be in the single market and still have those four freedoms. So Belgium, for example, is as strict as kind of Australia in enforcing the EU's rules about overstaying if you haven't got work within three months. They could be rules that we implemented ourselves. Obviously, Labour brought in ID cards that never became compulsory in the Tory and Lib Dem. Coalition got rid of them, but you could have ID cards under that system so you have confidence about who's in and out of the country at any time. Pre-1995, when we were in the single market then, the government counted people in and out of the borders. It was then Michael Howard who got rid of that. So there's a whole series of competencies around migration that we could show the country... That we know who's here, why they're here, and that we can manage public service appropriately without it being the sense of free-for-all while having the freedom of movement.
1: I guess this is my point, right, that in some sense, the counting people in and counting people out point, that you should obviously do that. But we don't. And No, I know, I know. And the point that I've always tried to make is we should tell the public what we actually believe, which is that our borders should be secure and that nobody has the right to come here to bomb people or to claim social security payments to which they are not entitled. I mean, that is surely obviously what the Labour Party is for, to like protect ordinary people in our country. And this shouldn't be some sort of triangulation strategy, like, oh, we have to say this or let because if we don't say this, then the Daily Mail will have a real go at us. It's like, Why don't we just say what we actually think about it? Because most Labour Party members that I've ever met, you know, have quite similar views to the public on this. I don't think it's anything to be afraid of.
0: Would you put it on a mug?
1: (laughs) I think that has to be the the test for any
2: immigration policy from now on. But wasn't the problem with the mug is that we didn't have the policies that saw through what the mug said. So it wasn't about controlling (laughs) immigration. It was about other kind of silly things uh, around the labour market that Ed did instead of... Essentially, having competence in the system. I, th-
1: I think the point is, you know, by the time you're relying on a mug, it's too late, isn't it? But actually, in general, it's a well known fact that the uh, electoral item that I believe can win any election is a badge, not a mug. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Get your single market badge from Alison McGovern.
1: I said at the beginning of Labour Party conference if anybody wants a campaign badge for the Labour campaign for the single market, we've got these nice little red badges. Then just come and ask me for one. And loads of people did. I was really surprised. Do you have any left? I do. So if anybody would like one. Oh,
0: great. So if listeners do you want, a yeah, exactly. if you you want a badge. Yeah, exactly. If you want a badge. subscribe
2: to the podcast, <laughs> and send us a, a picture of the fact you subscribe. We will send you one of the single market badges. There's a
1: really, really uh, nice Labour Party member called Isabel who did the, just this. She got in touch with me, asked for a badge. I sent her one. She sent me loads of sweets in return. So thank you, Isabel. <laughs> I hope Isabel is
0: listening. On kind of that issue on Labour Party members and campaigns, I just wanted to quickly move on to what happened at Labour Party conference and the fact that there wasn't a a debate, as it were, on Brexit on the conference floor. Now, I know that actually there is some confusion about this still. I saw that the, I think, um, the leader of the opposition's press office Twitter account was um, saying yesterday after Andrew Moore uh, said that there had been no Brexit debate at the Labour conference. They said that was not true. So Richard, you are an insider on this sort of stuff who understands the process a lot more than any of us. So
2: what, what did happen? So I received an email forwarded from one of our members who is on one of the various Momentum lists and Momentum put out an email recommending how people vote in the priority ballot. Progress do it. Labour first do similar things. Nothing wrong there. But in it was a quite interesting line where it said something broadly like Brexit's going to be debated. So you don't need to prioritise this. Prioritise these other motions instead. And what was interesting about that is it was one acknowledging that lots of those delegates who were there because they're pro Jeremy Corbyn, the surge that happened at the election and want to see the 40 percent we got in the 2017 election, turn into 43, 45, whatever it's going to take to beat the Tories. And they believe that doing so would stop a hard Brexit. So that was kind of acknowledged in it. And then they basically told them something that wasn't quite true, which is that having a Q&A with Keir Starmer and Emily Thornberry would somehow be a replacement for a proper debate about Brexit, the issues, the options. Alison's campaign on the single market and the TSSA more left campaign that's been started on Sorry, I shouldn't say more left, but has come from that bit of the traditional left in the Labour Party on the Labour campaign for free movement. Those all got denied the opportunity to have that debate. And what conference didn't get to do was give its view on Brexit in any kind of democratic way. It broadly got a glorified Q&A with Keir Starmer and he made a very good speech. He didn't go far enough clearly on the important issues, but there wasn't really opportunity for members to reflect that and the irony that the so-called campaign for Labour party democracy that have campaigned for years and years and years for be more debates more motions more issues more member involvement somehow papered over the cracks and suggested that a glorified Q&A replaced a real democratic debate.
1: I mean this is sort of the slightly amusing part of it although it is obviously very serious and Heidi and I wanted there to be a votable motion essentially and a, and a proper debate. Jeremy Corbyn would not be the first leader of the Labour Party to slightly stitch up what happens on conference floor and he won't be the last it's just slightly funny that we've come through all of this process and all of this like desire for democracy and all of the rest of it to have exactly pretty much the same situation at Labour Party Conference as we've ever had.
2: And also the first opportunity to use the stitch and fix, they took it. And what was remarkable, when you look at the delegates, they were so willing Jeremy Corbyn and his project on, that if somebody had stood up and said, look, Labour's a bit divided on this, let's let the Tories be divided for a few more weeks and we can definitely got plenty of time to come back for this, they could have won the political argument, but they decided to use the stitch and fix, use their kind of microchip Labour with the momentum app and win it without winning the argument. So
0: this is what I think is actually quite interesting because one delegate did stand up on stage and say we shouldn't debate, Brexit because we'll be divided, we won't agree. And actually over the weekend, some polling came out that says for the first time since Jeremy Corbyn became Labour leader, the public now think that the Conservative Party is more divided than the Labour Party. And I think actually on this issue, the Labour Party isn't very divided at all.
1: No, it's the new let's nationalise the rail industry. I mean, everyone agrees, right? Yeah,
0: I think I think regardless of when you join the Labour Party, whether it's pre-2015 or post-2015, basically all of the Labour MPs and basically I think probably nearly all members of Momentum as well roughly have the same view on, on what Brexit should be, which it shouldn't be a hard Tory Brexit that cuts all ties with Europe completely. And I think there's only a very, very small number who actually disagree
2: with that. And I just think Are they all work in Normanshaw South.
1: Well, I was on a panel at a conference with Kelvin Hopkins, who people will know as the Labour member of Parliament for Luton North. And Kelvin's one of the few Labour Leave people. He chairs the Labour Leave campaign, and I mean he was doing panels from that perspective because it is very, very difficult to find people who subscribe to that point of view. Partly because in a world where you know we had a 1950s type economy where the goods that we make we made them all here and you know they were manufactured here and then sold abroad You might come to one conclusion, although I I still don't think I'd agree. In a world where the goods that we make, we make them across Europe. So Airbus planes, for example, have the wings made in Broughton in North Wales and the rest of the parts of the plane are made in Toulouse and other parts of Europe. And then they're all brought together at the end. You know, it makes absolutely no sense to conceive of the British economy in the way that people who campaign... For us to leave Europe from a hard left position, do this sort of siege economy idea, put up walls, and then we can say what happens, you know, within those walls. Forget the rest of the world, right? We'll just care about what happens within our country's boundaries. Well, you know, actually, that might have made sense in the 1950s. It certainly doesn't make sense
2: now. Kelvin Hopkins is taking up the Benite position, a traditional Benite position on why we should be outside the kind of bosses' club EU.
1: Yeah, it's just like the world's. It was probably wrong then, and the world's a different place in any case.
2: I think that's true. But what the fear is, is that he's the bit of the iceberg that you can see. And he's there's only one or two that's above the the line. But there are more that essentially hold that position.
1: Well, I think what Connor's saying is that actually, the evidence is such as we have evidence, the evidence is that most people in the Labour Party do agree about where we are, that our jobs are too important, our rights are too important. And frankly, the economic consequences for our ability to fund public services are profound. Yeah, I mean,
2: those people are market. disproportionately in the new elite and the new establishment in the Labour Party, aren't they? There might be very few of them, but that's where they seem to reside.
0: Well, I think the best piece of evidence we could have had would have been a vote at a conference, which we didn't in the end have. I think this is obviously an issue that we will come back to again and again. But do stay with us, because in the next section you can find out how to win the best new political T-shirt.
2: Subscribe, rate, review. We're keen to listen to your thoughts about the podcast this week, the issues we've covered, how we've been debating the future of progressive politics. So send us a tweet at Progress Online. Contact us on Facebook forward slash Progress Labour. On Instagram, also at Progress Online. Send an email to office at progressonline.org.uk. Send us your thoughts and opinions. And please, please do leave us a review on iTunes. The best review could be a competition winner. We're expecting a mixed picture of reviews. Some people love Progress. Some people, not so much. But the prize for the best review this week, good or bad, will be the hottest item of political fashion, Philip Norma's centrist Centristad t-shirt. You could be that winner. And remember, if you subscribe to this podcast, tweet at us or put on Instagram, Facebook, or email in a screenshot of your subscription, and we will send you one of Alison McGovern's Campaign for the Single Market badges in the post. We'll be going through the best of your tweets, Facebook, emails, Instagrams and iTunes reviews in our Review of the Week podcast coming out this Friday. Make sure you subscribe to the channel so you get that too. And this week we'll be
0: answering our Political quiz question of the week. This week it is what was the topic of Cambridge undergraduate and now Shadow Secretary of State for Justice Richard Bergen's undergraduate dissertation. Send us in your thoughts throughout the week and we will find out the answer on Friday's show.
1: been listening to the progressive britain podcast with me alison mcgovern with richard angel and Connor pope the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast